Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast by members of the Ask Different community about Apple and related technologies. This is episode number three, recorded May 7th, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin, and joining with me as always is Jason Salas. What's going on, Jason? Afternoon, Kyle. Still uh, still kind of sick, but finally getting over it, so this should turn out a little bit better for me in the end. Well, that sounds, sounds like you're turning a corner at least. <laughs> Uh, we've also <laughs> we've also got Nathan Greenstein again. Nathan, how are you? I'm great. I am still not sick. <laughs> well, that's always something to be proud of. We have still proved that computer viruses do not spread to humans. <laughs> All right, we uh, we have some podcast news. Actually, our podcast has been officially launched. It's a bit. Odd to announce that our podcast has been launched in our third episode, but our second episode had already been recorded by the time we launched the podcast. So it's exciting that we're finally getting these podcasts in the hands of people that uh, can listen in them, and we've we've heard some really positive feedback so far. So just keep sending it to us, and we're we definitely appreciate receiving it. We're also now featured on the Superuser blog, so I want to thank uh, everyone over there for allowing us to spread our podcast to their community as well. In Stack Exchange news, there has been an update to the Stack Exchange software to address a long-standing problem where questions received far fewer votes than answers. And so the steps they've taken to help solve that problem is to give you 10 extra votes per day in addition to your 30 votes for questions and answers combined, you get 10 additional votes per day that you can use only on questions. And also the user page now has a lot more details about how many votes you've cast, and that's divided up by day, week, and month, so you can identify trends in your voting and act accordingly. And if you haven't voted on a question for a while, Stack Exchange will give you a little pop-up to remind you that you should vote on an answer instead of, or you should vote on a question as well as the answer. Yeah, this is something that I know I'm pretty guilty of, and it's funny to see the contrast with the new communities versus the old communities. Uh, if you head over to a site that's been established, one of the big three, as they call them, if you head over to Stack Overflow or even Meta Stack Overflow, the ratings that questions get just skyrocket immediately. Um, there was a uh, there was a feature request that I posted for Stack Exchange chat that I was very surprised to see the question itself had a double-digit uh, upvote rating, uh, and then the answer was probably like three times that much when they said that they fixed it. Um, it's a pretty good addition to have made in order to actually get things featured that you're interested in, be it used perhaps for uh, trend data for questions that you might have inside on down the road, or just in general, this is something that will feature a question more prominently when searching within tags, um, really any different kind of the filtering methods that the site has. Yeah, it's it's very important also to reward people that ask good questions. So, you know, if you see someone that has asked a really good question, upvote it because that's what helps the quality of the questions remain high on the sites. Upvotes are worth five or ten points to rep. Uh, if you're voting on a question, the, the person that you're voting gets an additional five points. If it's an answer, it's ten points. 
Back all the way to our first episode, LastPass was one of our featured security tips, and there's been unfortunately a bit of bad news that came out in the last couple of days. Um, the LastPass folks are very communicative and are very upfront with any information that they deem concerning. Uh, there was a post that they made earlier this week in that they are concerned that there have be- that there may have been a security compromise on their systems. Uh, the gist of it is that they detected network traffic that is definitely larger than just the transfer of password and other private information and it looks like there may have been an indirect compromise that was sending encrypted data to a to an unauthorized source as a result they've pointed out that this may be an overreaction but when you're dealing with something that's such sensitive security information it's worth it to go through these steps to make sure that everything is going to be okay um, again the the information that's been compromised is just the encrypted blobs so still without the master password there's nothing they can do with that data uh, I don't know what cipher they were using previously, but again, they're using at least enterprise-grade security that should protect these things from everything but a complicated brute force attack, and that's why a random password, mixed case, special characters, numbers, and again, not use, not having uh, letters in a dictionary word or uh, arrangement goes a long way to actually securing you from problems like these. Yeah, actually, it shows that... Um it's actually really important to secure the data on the servers. I could just see this being a, a much worse problem if something like Dropbox was compromised. We mentioned Dropbox in comparison with, with LastPass on our first show, where Dropbox, in addition to storing the encrypted data, also stores the encrypted keys. Now, if an attacker was managed to get both the keys and the encrypted data, then it basically would be game over. All the files in Dropbox would be available for anyone to get. So... LastPass's decision to intentionally not store any unencrypted data or any data that cannot be uh, decrypted without the interaction of the user, turns out it was a really smart decision for them to make. They would prefer you to update your master password just for security's sake. But if you feel that your master password is significantly strong enough, you can log in and opt not to change it. And what that will do is it'll use your explicit authorization to update the encryption cipher still using the same master password. So ultimately, in the end, you're going to get a uh, you're going to you're going to get the improvements that they rolled out. But you don't necessarily have to change it if you feel that yours is strong enough. I'm on the fence. Mine. <laughs> My password is password123. No, no, it isn't. And please don't try that, even though it's not. Um, my password, I generally concern, I generally consider it to be strong enough. It's one that I've used in only a couple of sites. And maybe by virtue of the fact that I'm saying a couple, I should probably consider changing it to something else. You probably should have a, a single password for LastPass and then different passwords for everything else. Yeah, it's definitely not shared within the data anywhere. Um, I, I'll, I'll probably be changing it to something else. I just have to come up with something memorable and go through this wonderful, wonderful process of password security all over again. Yeah. We also wanted to issue a slight correction to our first episode. The, the pricing information that we mentioned about LastPass, uh, apparently was not correct. Do Jason, do you know what the, the correct pricing is? 
the pricing information was still correct. Uh, it's, as they put it, $1 a month, but the minimum amount that you can buy at a time is one year. Uh, what wasn't correct was one of the paid features. Uh, what I had originally stated was that if you use LastPass and don't pay, that you have the password contents locally and you can maintain your own sync. That was completely wrong. Um, uh, per their own premium features page, the all of your passwords are always stored server-side. Uh, the two main differences is that you can only access it through a web browser or the LastPass plugins normally. If you pay, then you can actually use the mobile phone applications that they use, such as those for BlackBerry, iPhone, and Android. Uh, and they also have a two-factor authentication system that you can use their own utility for or use a uh, YubiKey if you have one. Uh, and also, Payne will get rid of ads in the management in the actual LastPass.com management interface. And going back to episode two, we broke the news that the white iPhone had been released and there had been reports that it was 0.2 millimeters thicker than the black one. And as more people have gotten their hands on it and done some more serious testing, it has been revealed that it is not thicker. It is identical dimensions of the black one. So it will still work in your cases. It won't feel bigger in your hand and you don't need to worry about it. So if you want a white one, go ahead. I definitely think that uh, for certain models and, and certain production runs, there may be a variance in thickness between two iPhone 4s, but uh, what's come out is apparently that there's not actually a distinct difference between the white and the black. It looks like apparently the person just got a, a white iPhone that was manufactured that somehow was 0.2 millimeters thicker than the black one. But it doesn't appear to be something that is uh, a trait or quality of the actual white iPhone. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of discussion about this. It's one of those headlines that just went in a lot of different directions because how dare Apple prevent us from using the case that we already pay? Those money-grubbing jerks are are just taking everything we have. Um, there, there were there were articles that were debunking the initial pictures that came out. Um, that the focus and the angle, uh, the angle of the shot and whatnot, was essentially played a trick that would actually make it look significantly different. And I admit those pictures did look significantly different just on their face, be it intentional or not. Hard to say. Um, but between Consumer Reports, a lot of the established blogs out there, and Gadget. Uh, and Gadget TechCrunch and a couple of others that took an actual, I don't remember, multimeter, I believe the, the tool was, that they would actually uh, they would actually set it on the very top and bottom of the phone, and they could measure it identically. I think um, they're, there were, they're calipers. Calipers, yeah. Uh, multimeters, is that? It doesn't matter. Calipers, electricity is something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, measure, measuring current. Well, make sure the iPhone puts out the same amount of power for external devices too. Although, do you remember when when there was that antenna gate thing, there were actually people that were trying to measure the the impedance and stuff of the antenna across that gap. So, it's I know at least one time a multimeter was taken to an iPhone, so <laughs> and I'm sure they've done it to gauge the the USB camera adapter output. Um there were 
there were a couple of anecdotal news, uh, a couple anecdotal posts that came out about this as well, and that people compared a black iPhone 4 to a black iPhone 4 some time ago, and that they were different size. And these these 0.2 millimeter differences, a 2 millimeter difference, as some people had erroneously put, would be pretty significant for a phone of this size, but a 0.2 millimeter difference, that's... That's I believe manufacturers consider that standard deviation tolerance, something that will happen by nature because of the imperfect precision of machines, but not enough to make a substantial difference considering the components and the uh, the, the manu- manufacturing process itself. Right. So continuing our coverage um, from our first episode where we broke that the iPhone was tracking your location and the second episode where we mentioned that Apple had put out a press release explaining that no, they weren't actually tracking your information. It looks like Apple has, just a few days ago, they released iOS 4.3.3, which reduces the size of the location database cache uh, to store only the past seven days of data, and it stops backing up the cache when you connect it to your computer. So even though the information is on your phone, it's n- it no longer is transferred to your computer. So you won't be able to run that tool on, on say your, you know, Nemesis's computer and find out where they've been because they're they're disabling that functionality. And it looks like when you turn location services off, it will also delete the cache completely. So it looks like Apple took the concerns about location tracking pretty seriously. And I'd say it's a two-week turnaround time is almost unprecedented for Apple to actually turn around and publish a bug fix. So uh, it's good on them that they recognized the problem and that they were able to effectively deal with, with the situation. I could be incorrect at this. It's been quite a long time since it actually happened. But it seems that after Apple said that they were going to publish the fix that changed the signal quality indicator, that it still was at least a couple of weeks after the press conference before that actually came out. Yeah, and I think at that time that was considered like the fastest fix. So it looks like they've gotten even better at at their turnaround time for their fixes. And just one last aside is that for Verizon iPhone users, apparently the OS version is called 427, uh, so they're still not quite in line. That'll probably happen either, I don't know, rethinking 4.4 or perhaps even iOS 5 that they're debuted to announce soon? Yeah, my guess is that iOS 5 will bring all those lines back in unison. There is a the location fix for Verizon. It's Like you said, it, I think it's actually 4.2.8. Eight is the one that contains the location fix, but it is available for that that mm. brand of phone as well. Right. Deviating from phones a little bit themselves, there's been a little bit of discussion that's been going around regarding why the why Android cell phones have uh, Android backed cell phones have taken off as they have, and pretty much indisputably are perhaps shipping more than the iPhone, or at least will do so, will do so shortly. Uh, but over in the tablet world, that we're now a year and a couple of months into, it's still such a landslide in Apple's favor. Uh, we covered a little bit of the BlackBerry Playbook, and I know in the stores I've seen, uh, there's of course been the Samsung Galaxy Tab, there's been the Motorola Zoom, there is the LG, it's either the LG Slate or the LG G Slate, one of the two. And there's another one that I saw at Best Buy some time ago, the name is completely escaping me, um, the manufacturer's name was in Chinese, and I believe the product name was just generically called either a slate or a tablet. 
Uh, I presume it to be Android-backed, but I'm not 100% sure about this. The two main points that have been made on this topic have been, one, that there have been tons of Android apps, uh, I'm sorry, Android tablets previewed at CES and just in general. Uh, HP notably has their has their tablet preview that they've actually dedicated a press conference to, but that's not out yet, and to the best of my knowledge, there's not a specific release date yet, just one that's supposed to come at some point later this year. When and- when uh, the Android OS finally debuted on mobile phones, there was the, the G1, and then the... They called it the My Touch that T-Mobile branded it, and of course, individuals jumped on the uh, jumped on the Android thing as soon as phones started coming out. But needless to say, when there were just a couple phones, the take up didn't quite happen. But now that there's probably more than a hundred Android phones in all the various flavors across all the various carriers, that market share is just increasing exponentially. And it need not be said that a lot of that has to do with availability on top of the people that are actually going explicitly for the Android environment. Where over in the tablet space, there's, I believe I named five, and I lump Playbook in there even though it may or may not actually be Android devoted. Um, And I believe the takeaway for this is that Apple really jumped into a really good spot with its pricing scheme right out of the gate. None of the original tablets that compared in size, capacity, and specs, uh, meaning compare 3G to 3G, compare Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi, no one came out of the gate at that same price point, at that same feature level. Um, that's Surely that's going to be something that's going to happen down the road, but it's just not something that's happened yet. Uh, and again, to draw the same parallel with Android phones that have come out, the tablet... Uh, the tablet ubiquity hasn't happened yet. They're all very highly specific, uh, not to mention the, the the difference that everybody didn't have a tablet before. Uh, they existed, but they weren't all there, where everybody has a phone, and we were being trained over the course of the last eight years that, hey, you can put a music player in there, and hey, you can put a camera in there, and these features started coming into something that everybody uses anyways, where a tablet is more specific purpose than a phone but not it didn't excel in any one thing uh so there's still there's still a lot of people that don't necessarily have the need for one there is also uh, something that i don't think many people are mentioning is that apple has an incredible distribution system uh, a lot of the Android phones that came out are ones that were purchased by the carriers and sold in the carriers stores and it looks like the same model doesn't work so well with tablets. Uh, incorporating those cellular chips into tablets makes them more expensive. And when you're comparing, when you go to the AT&T store and you say, well, you know, this, this tablet looks good, but I don't really want to spend $600 on it when I can get an iPad for $500. And also, a lot of people don't want to spend, you know, 10 15 $20, a month on a dedicated data plan for their tablets or sign up for a contract. And it's really to Apple's credit that they have deals with Best Buy. They have their own retail stores and online stores where they were actually able to sell these tablets directly. And it, like you said, it, they're much more analogous to computers than they are to phones in that regard. And that's, I think one of the reasons why 
the tablets are are able to sell more, Apple's iPads are able to sell more than Android tablets is because that Apple has a much larger reach for them. There's there's been this discussion I've had with a couple of other individuals in my area uh, on a on a unrelated topic, and that's how uh, pe- people claim that casual gaming on the iPhone and people people are claiming that gaming on the iPhone and Androids and iPods and iPads is taking off so highly because people are turning into into casual gamers. That's not that's not true at all. People that would go buy a console for hardcore gaming, the number of people that would do that is minuscule compared to the people that, when they're at an arcade, would drop a quarter in and play skee-ball, and by extension, the people that would pluck down a dollar to buy Ramp Champ in the App Store. Oh, that's free now. Hey. But the the number of people that that will spend this paltry amount of money to play a simple, engaging game far outweigh the number of people that will spend... $200, $300 $200, $300 on a fully-fledged system to play this thing. Um, not, I'm not discrediting Android by saying this, but this is the exact same u- ubiquity argument I already made. People that want to buy an iPhone will go buy an iPhone. People that want to buy something Android-backed will go, will go uh, buy a phone that's Android-backed. But the difference is that people that just want a phone that can do cool things have more and more choices at better and better prices even times free, uh, subsidized by their carrier, that they will pick up an Android phone and that the, the check goes into the Android column. That's not a bad thing, and I'm not discrediting Android in any way by saying that, but the sheer fact of availability topples the landslide in Android's favor. But with a tablet, it has to be something that you want because it doesn't. it's not a basic thing. It's not a... Um, it, it's a specific device. It's not something that we've already had that you're maintaining. And in Apple news, the newest Apple product is now the new iMac, which is a an under-the-hood speed bump to the old iMacs, and some, some new features like Thunderbolt I.O. ports instead of the, the mini display port, and Thunderbolt supports very, very good read-write times for hard drives so once we start seeing more peripherals based on thunderbolt that is going to be definitely a high profile feature and the other main changes are under the hood they've upgraded to intel core i5 and i7 quad core cpus so configurable of course and the graphics have been upgraded to nvidia and or amd depending on which you select both significant speed bumps from the old models and the benchmarks I've seen score the new iMacs significantly higher than the old ones. And looks like the other addition is an HD built-in camera for video conferencing and... Yeah, and FaceTime. Yeah, I think the the big killer feature is that there are actually two Thunderbolt ports on the 27-inch, which means you can hook up two dis- external displays to the iMac, which basically pretty much eliminates the need for a Mac Pro, in my opinion, Unless you need, say, for expansion example, slots. expansion slots, exactly. But you know, with the Thunderbolt, you can hook up uh, external hard drives at, at blazing speeds. And now that you can hook three monitors, or sorry, you can hook two displays up, so you have three total displays. I think you know that should be sufficient for a lot of people. And Engadget actually had this picture where you had the, the iMac in the center, and then they had two 30-inch Dell displays on either end. And I have to say. I kind of want that setup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a that that would be a 
very distinct mission control to be set up in that manner. Um, it's it's interesting the gamble that Apple has taken on Thunderbolt, and uh, it's interesting that I still refer to it that way, but Firewire didn't really take hold. And I've seen it on a couple of general PC motherboards, and then there's obviously plenty of PCI expansion cards, but Firewire, in the grand scheme of things, fizzled. Um, and you can call it vendor support and whatnot that you think of, but this Thunderbolt port originated on Apple products, and they're slowly rolling it out to the whole line. Um, I never saw mini DVI anywhere else. Uh, I never saw display port. I've heard of monitors that have display ports, so I'm not as uh, I'm not as critical about that one. But mini display port also, to the best of my knowledge, is Apple specific. It may not be the case, and you know, it, it needs not be said that. Uh, Apple users, passive Apple users, aren't exactly on top of hardware like uh, PC users pretty much have to be. Um, but this this Thunderbolt thing continues to be quite a big gamble. But it's good to see that they started it on the MacBook Pros, and they're going to uh, they just rolled it out to the iMacs. And obviously, the next answer is the Mac Pros are going to get a refresh. Oh, I don't know. Let's put a baseless assumption out there and say three months from now uh, and the entire the entire suite is going to have at least one Thunderbolt port um, correct me if I'm wrong but isn't there didn't they say that Thunderbolt supports potentially 10 devices on the chain and the monitor has to be the last one I think it's actually six devices I think I'm not sure so on the 27 inch iMac you can have not only not only can you have two additional displays on presumably on either side of the iMac screen itself but you can also have five other devices in between you can have 10 devices littered around your desk and three tall monitors shadowing over uh, shadowing over them yeah exactly talk about having to have a huge desk to suffice all that yeah it's good that we're actually getting an external connector that can communicate at the uh the speeds of this of the internal bus of the computer because well, I mean, internal SAS drives, for especially for servers, have just been so much faster than even like things like eSATA. But now that we have Thunderbolt, that's going to be operating. I think they have like two ten um, uh, gigabit per second channels for each port. That it's really going to be, it's really going to eliminate the need for a lot of people having like a Mac Pro and keeping keeping stuff internally, which is mm-hmm. it's, it's exciting. And you have to know that the channel that they have to put this on on the board, they could only they put two ports on the 27 inch more than likely only because it could actually fit it. Where to have, I don't even want to see that. I don't even want to know how big the components are to actually suffice a Thunderbolt uh, channel. But it's purely by size the fact that they could actually fit two of them in the 27 inch, considering everything that gets packed into an iMac. Well, it could also be a product differentiation thing. You never really know. Um, although, I think at this point, uh, there's no real reason why you'd want to buy the 21-inch iMac. The screen's... I mean, the screen's okay, but the, the resolution <laughs> isn't very good. Uh, I mean, if you're going to get that, you might as well just get a Mac Mini and just get a just a cheap monitor, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> that's, that's a nice comparison. I mean... Uh, the screen that I use more than half the time, my laptop isn't 21 inches. I'd be glad to go from 17 to 21 inches. Of course, I'd be, not to say I wouldn't be more happy going to 27, but the the price differential in that alone is, uh, 
Well, the 21-inch starts... The, the base price for the 21-inch is, I believe, 1200 And the base price for the 27-inch is, I believe, 1700 So I realize it's it's $600, but that $600 buys you a heck of a lot. It buys $600 you... $600 also buys you a mini. You want to loan me 600 bucks <laughs> there, Kyle? Well, I'm just saying, you know, the, the, the display itself. Uh, it, if you were to simply ignore the actual... Uh, computer aspects of the iMac, just the display and the obviously the the HD camera, the microphone, the speakers that are all built into that one frame. The nearest comparison is the 27-inch uh, Apple um, external display that they have, and they sell that for a grand. So it really, it's like you're getting a uh, one of those one of those monitors that Apple sells for a grand plus. A ridiculously fast computer, faster. Th- well, first off, it's faster than you'd be able to get for an additional six hundred dollars in the mini line. In fact, I think the the cheapest mini sells for seven hundred now. So it's it's a deal if you have the money to buy it, <laughs> which I don't, but I wish I did. The other advantage to the set the twenty seven inch is the extra internal hard drive slot, so you can you can pop in an SSD for for certain things or just double your storage. That's right. I forgot that they mentioned that the uh build to order that that's a that's a build to order a custom configuration only and not in any of the stock models that you could uh, walk out of the Apple store with, correct? That's correct. Yeah. You can also install the hard drive yourself if you if you want. <laughs> you know, I used to think that opening up those iMacs was like really intimidating because all the guides that you read online say, you know, you need like suction cups and all that. But I was actually playing with one the other day. Um, not in an Apple store, um, but elsewhere. And that, the glass that goes around the display is actually held on magnetically. So you can just, you know, grab an edge and just sort of gently pull it off. And it just comes right off. That's kind of scary to think about, to be completely honest. I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I knew it was magnetized, but I still figured that suctioning it would be the easiest way so that you don't you know, accidentally use a nail or intentionally use your nail to actually get enough leverage to pick it away from the from the display or from the the chassis in general. Uh, it still sounds scary to me, and perhaps it's just that I'm not as much of a hardware person that my hands are unsteady, and I know that. But that still sounds like a nightmare to do sanely, scratching the scratching the chassis, scratching the glass, uh, not or shattering the, the glass. glass when you find. Yeah, exactly. You get it. You get it off the. You get it away from the magnet significantly enough, and then you have to make sure that you don't get anything, any gunk on the back end, and that you don't drop it outright. That's that's paranoia inducing when it comes to service. I have to say, it's a lot easier than trying to service one of those old uh, G3 iMacs. Man, you had to take like fifty screws out to even get that apart. And is that the one that kind of has the the desk lamp kind of dome well, base? Well, that was the G4. That was actually a little better than the G3. Um, with the G4, you you basically took the bottom off, and then there were like other screws that you would actually physically separate it right above the connector ports. Uh, you have to be careful because there are a lot of other connections. And um, I actually, when I was servicing one, it was my sister's. I, I accidentally severed the connection on the board that connected to the display, so I basically <laughs> brick. Well, I shouldn't say brick that. I mean, the computer itself worked, but the display obviously didn't display anything. I mean, you could connect 
an external to it, but uh, fortunately, she by that time she had um, a MacBook, so it wasn't absolutely necessary for her computer to be working. It wasn't as devastating as taking yeah. taking out a primary computer. Yeah, but that was really but annoying. Still, um, but yeah. that that wasn't too hard. Um, I've but the 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 old G three man, like you had to pop off. Uh, there's a it's the one that it's the CRT, so you had to like pop off this the, the, the cover on the back, and then like there's this thing that slides out. Oof. But it's all it's all really packed tightly, and like the hard drives but in like this cage underneath the logic board, and it's just I don't know. I didn't enjoy working on that, but the newer iMacs, I don't know. Be, you you pop that glass off, you take a few screws out, you take the screen out, and you have access to all your internals right there. So it's, uh, obviously, if you're not an Apple repair technician, um, do uh, opening up your computer that way may void your warranty. So I just want to leave you with that disclaimer, but it's certainly easy, possible to do, I should say. So yeah, if you want to replace that, that actual internal hard drive, it's not that difficult. But will void your warranty. <laughs> Yeah, if you uh, if you mess up with the repair and you have to bring it into the Apple Store, they may say, "Look, you know, you try to take this apart. We can't. We obviously can't support this." So, so I wanted to talk a little bit today about Spotlight. Uh, Spotlight's a feature that's uh, was introduced in macOS 10.4 Tiger, and it it's basically an indexed search of all the files on your computer. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but for the longest time, I really didn't use Spotlight that much, just because typically whenever I tried to find something with it, I wasn't I wasn't able to, or it, it produced a bunch of garbage files that I, I had no interest in seeing. And so I, if anyone out there is like me and has had some problems getting useful results from Spotlight, I just wanted to share a few of the tips that I've recently learned. Uh, the first is... Uh, when you go into System Preferences and then Spotlight and then Privacy, you can actually exclude certain directories from being searched. So if you have, say, for example, a like a source code directory, and you know you won't you won't ever need to f- to find source code, um, it's especially useful like if you have tons of library uh, directories where you've got like thousands of files that are that are part of standard libraries for different languages. You can just exclude all of those from the search, and then they won't show up. Uh, in that same vein, if you have installed Xcode, it's worth um, excluding the developer directory from from being searched because there are a lot of those those similar files in there. Uh, if you need to find something in the Xcode in the de- developer directory, like Xcode itself, uh, my suggestion is just to make some shortcuts on your doc for them. Uh, so there are other applications like Adobe Creative Suite that will install some junk in your applications folder. You can just easily filter that out as well in the privacy thing. So it's not just for privacy, but it's also for convenience where you can you can exclude stuff from, from being searched. And then sometimes like you'll type in uh, the name of a file that you're searching for, and then it'll give you like a bunch of documents that have have that uh, that particular word in them as well, and you need to be able to specify exactly what the file name is. So Spotlight has a few uh, 
actually has a lot of uh, search tokens where you can you can say, for example, name colon, and then um, type the name or part of the name of the file that you're looking for. And then what that will do is Spotlight will uh, do that search only on the file names. Or, for example, suppose you needed to find a file that you know you created yesterday or today or something, you can do date colon and then today or date colon yesterday. Um, there are more complicated ways where you can specify date ranges. There are a bunch of other different search parameters that you can use. We'll link them in the show notes so you can take a look, but I found them quite useful in being able to uh, sort of sift through the files on my computer and be able to find exactly what I'm looking for. So I, uh, due to these these tips, I found Spotlight to be much more useful now. I'm definitely one of the people that hasn't jumped on the Spotlight bandwagon. Um, I know people that have actively tried to disable it, and I... I just kind of leave it there and re- either delete it, shortcut, or set it to something else that it, that's not going to interfere with me. Um, I The only extent that I ever really learned to use Spotlight for is to launch applications that weren't sitting in the dock. Uh, and I don't, I don't like putting the applications folder in the dock. And then when I discovered the greatness of launcher applications such as Quicksilver, Spotlight, and LaunchBar... Uh, wow, hello. Uh, such as Quicksilver, Alfred, and LaunchBar, uh, and just the sheer speed, the sheer lightning quickness that those applications run at, I have pretty much never used Spotlight ever again. Um, that being said, I don't have a lot of content that I have to sift through, and it's that's probably a trait very specific to me. Uh, but I can see going through this document that Kyle's referencing, the ability to dive into EXIF data for pictures, um, everything from the camera model to the flash features and whatnot, when it comes to actually having a base of type of media and to be able to use that special information that exists within it, this is this is pretty impressive. Uh, it's definitely something I've never heard of before. Yeah, one of the things I really like about Spotlight, um, now that I have a scanner that does OCR, is that Spotlight will actually index all the uh, the OCR in a PDF. So I get I get a bunch of paper, and in, instead of keeping it around and having it totally unorganized, I just feed it through my scanner and then toss the paper. And then anytime I need to find something, I just type a few keywords from the thing that I want to find, and usually, you know, immediately, I'm able to to uh, just pick out the file that I was looking for and. It's it's just amazed me how how fast Spotlight is, especially in the in the newer generations of Mac OS X. And if you're using it strictly as a launcher, uh, Spotlight is configured so that if there exists an application that meets that criteria, it will pop that up immediately. So I've actually found Spotlight useful as a launcher. It didn't always used to be good like that, um, but I think either in Leopard or Snow Leopard, they really they they tuned it enough that it's now you know, whenever you do the uh, the old command space and just type in an application name, it's it's immediate. So I've given the uh, <laughs> the various launchers like Quicksilver and LaunchBar and Alfred a try, but I've never really gotten them to stick because uh, Spotlight is sufficient for for what I need it for. All right, and our question of the week this week. Uh, is Snow Leopard Server as a main everyday OS. This was asked on May 3rd by Carlos. And the question is basically, can a user run the Snow Leopard Server operating system 
as a, a regular desktop. And for the most part, it, it seems to be that macOS 10 and macOS 10 server are mostly identical. But what's interesting is that the post brings up uh, a few of the differences and and basically asks whether or not running a server, uh, running rather the server operating system, is maybe worse as a desktop operating system than it, than it, uh, the regular macOS 10 desktop. We have uh, four Snow Leopard server instances at work, and we don't we don't use the desktop aspect of them uh, because all of the utilities that we need to use to configure them, uh, the server the the disk and all the media that comes with the server, uh, disk one is the server OS, disk two is admin applications, and on any other app on any other Mac computer in your network, you can install the same utilities and just configure them to point to your servers. So, server admin, workgroup manager, server preferences, iCal server, podcast producer. Uh, I believe there's an XGrid management in there. All of those applications can be installed on a remote computer, and then you just authenticate to the server, and away you go in configuration. That being said, over the course of troubleshooting, we do occasionally hook up a mouse monitor and keyboard to the server and start running uh, start running on fixes that are just easier when it's remote uh, when you're when you're physically on the system, and we've even run a couple of applications that are geared to be desktop oriented on the server for various uses. Uh, one of them is ShareTool, which um, which forwards automatic resource announcements, the bonjour announcements, across networks, across VPNs that don't support it. When you install server and when you log in, you're treated to the exact same interface that you have otherwise. You have a dock there on the bottom of your screen. You have the, uh, I believe the Aurora background is a solid blue instead of having that purple hue coming out of the middle. Um, And then, of course, there's some icons in the dock that are server-specific. But you can start it up and run with it uh identically and it it gets all the same it gets all the same updates which is which is actually kind of a double edged sword you're kind of like hit doubly you're not only getting the desktop updates but you're getting server updates as well is that what you mean yeah. one of the things that i've i i thought that maybe might might make a difference is that maybe there are a lot more services that are running in the background and there's like a lot more logging and 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 basically system maintenance that's going on on the server operating system that might make it um, l- less performant than its desktop counterpart. But yeah. to me, they look pretty much identical. There definitely is quite a quite a bit more that can be set to run at the same time. I mean, it need not be said that when you're on a desktop operating system and you have the integral system services, and that's pretty much it. You're not doing web sharing. You're not doing file sharing. Um, there's all of the built-in daemons that have to run and will take a lot less of your resources. But on the server OS, if you run your chat server, if you run your web server, that has quite a bit more processing, I might add. The, the, the webmail, the wiki integration... Um, the uh, mailman-powered mailing lists and whatnot that will absolutely take more more resources away from the actual uh, the actual desktop interaction that you're doing with it. And basically, it comes down to if you need to run a server, you you know you need to run a server, and it's just not good form to be using it as a desktop because something that you do might affect the stability of that server. So if you need to run a server just and you need to run Mac OS 10 server, just 
don't use it as a desktop. And conversely, if you don't need to run a server, there's no there's no real reason to pay for Mac OS X server because you get a lot of uh, similar functionality. Uh, Mac OS X has built in a bunch of sharing features where you can log in via SSH. You can do you know um, AFP, FTP, and 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 Samba, rather Windows sharing. Um, you can do screen sharing, and this is all built into the basic twenty-nine dollar uh, Snow Leopard desktop. So, I just it the question almost doesn't really seem to have a logical premise for me because if you're running a server, you shouldn't be using it as a desktop, and if you're using a desktop, you shouldn't be using you shouldn't have to pay for a server OS. So. But uh, if if you, the listener, have uh, a different take on this, or if you have some ideas, I'm sure Carlos would appreciate your answers. We'll link the question in our show notes. And this brings us around to our app of the week. Uh, this time, I've picked the app of the week, uh, and I'd like to highlight Tiny Wings. It's a great little iOS app. It runs it, it runs on the iPhone. It does also run on the iPad. But it, it's not iPad native, so it'll be in the, the 1X, 2X scaling mode. But it's just a fantastic little app. Um, there's It's a game where you're a little bird, and your goal is to get as far as you can and collect as many points as you can before the sun sets. So you start off on an island, and if you hold down on the screen, the bird will tuck in its wings, and it will slide along the hills. And if you release... and the the screen, then the the bird will flap its wings and it will sort of glide along. And using the combination of sliding along the hills and gliding through the air, you can gain quite a bit of speed as you're going along. And basically, the idea is to, um, like I said, get as far as you can. And there are different islands that you can get to that have varied terrain and stuff uh, that make the it more challenging. Uh, the game also randomizes what the levels are like um, every day, so it's not like you're playing the same levels over and over again. So it's a very simple game to play, but you're always getting sort of that fresh experience to it. So I've I've found it quite addicting, actually. My highest score is, I think, gosh, I can't remember. It's like 270,000 points. I have the 30x nest, so I'm I'm a little addicted to that, but it's it's just a fantastic game. It's remarkably well done, It's an, and it's incredibly smooth. I've definitely found that the big clincher in that game is predominantly score, score challenge between individuals and the leaderboards in general. Um, I... I've played it not nearly as much as Kyle, so the I think I'm only on either the 14-time or the 16-time nest multiplier. Uh, basically, the long and the short of it is that while playing through the game, you're given specific uh, challenges that you have to meet within uh, within a, a, just a single run. That'll be, uh, I, I think most recently I did like 200 coin collection, uh, not collecting the blue speed boost coins. Uh, touching, getting, getting enough speed to ramp up through the cloud touch a number of times. Have a they, they go back to having a number of chain perfect jumps uh, a number of times, uh, and I believe there's even like a get get to a specific island achievement, and sometimes with a specific set like do a do a ramp right into the third island. I think is also one that I did kind of recently. So the clincher is that they give you these specific challenges to overcome while you're playing the game. And as soon as you do, I believe it's a set of five challenges at a time, they upgrade your multiplier, which is represented by a new nest. Uh, you start at 
10 times, and then I think it's just adding two, at least as far as I've gotten, it's 10 times multiplier, 12 times, 14 times, and I just recently hit 16. Um, yeah, that's exactly result, it, yeah. Yeah, as a result, my score is very paltry compared to Kyle, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm trying. Some of the challenges are particularly hard to work out, and then there's the islands that are just so chasmy that it's a nightmare to to descend into accurately enough. Now, did you say your score was paltry or poultry? Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, yes. I went there. You went there. <laughs> you said that. Yeah, it's um it's just a really good game. I enjoy it. All right. I think that that wraps up. Uh, this has been the Ask Different podcast. Uh, you can find us on iTunes by searching for Ask Different Podcast. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like for us to answer on air, email us at podcast at askdifferent.net. The .net is important, so just podcast at askdifferent.net. Thank you for listening.